Welcome to the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast from Ideas to Go, the podcast where we explore what's going on under the radar with non-conscious instincts that trip up innovation and point you to some effective ways around them. Look, we all want to do the right thing for our customers. We all want innovation to be the big, world-changing thing we hoped it could be. If you're not enjoying innovation, you're doing it wrong. I'm your host, Adam Hansen, and I'll be joined by folks who love innovation and know what's up. Come join us in our adventures as we, together, explore how to help you outsmart your instincts. We're finite critters. We believe we have a pretty solid handle on reality. We move through the world with a map that makes sense to us. Sure, there are things happening that we're not aware of, but most of the things to which we pay less attention aren't that critical to us, or so we believe. For those items within the focus of our attention, we need to have a working model for how they operate, what affects them, what ethical behavior is with respect to them, etc. We need a map. But maps are abstractions simplifications to make our navigation easier. They deliberately exclude information so we can act on a smaller fraction of information. So we need to remember always that the map is not the territory. That some maps are lower resolution maps that don't have a lot of detail. And that we can improve any map with higher resolution and new information that better matches the facts of the territory. Confirmation bias steers us toward reiterating the value of the map over any concern to understand the territory better. We can do better than that. In innovation, we owe our customers work based on the best map, not a convenient one. The Strange Case of Skunk Baxter. Want to go even further in stretching out perspectives to get well beyond confirmation bias? How about Top Weapon Systems Consultant by Day lead guitarist for famous rock band by night. Meet Skunk Baxter, former lead guitarist from Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. This story from the Wall Street Journal in 2005 shows how to get truly unexpected benefit from the least likely sources. Mr. Baxter, who's now 56 years old, has gone from a rock career that brought him eight platinum records to a spot in the small constellation of consultants paid to help both policymakers and defense contractors better understand the way terrorists think and plan attacks. The guitarist turned defense consultant does regular work for the Department of Defense and the nation's intelligence community, chairs a congressional advisory board on missile defense, and has lucrative consulting contracts with companies like Science Applications International Corp., Northrop Grumman Corp., and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Inc. He says he is in increasing demand for his unconventional views of counterterrorism. We thought turntables were for playing records until rappers began to use them as instruments. And we thought airplanes were for carrying passengers until terrorists realized they could be used as missiles, says Mr. Baxter, who sports a ponytail and handlebar mustache. My big thing is to look at existing technologies and try to see other ways they can be used, which happens in music all the time. It happens to be what terrorists are incredibly good at. One of Mr. Baxter's clients, General Atomics Vice President Mike Campbell, likens him to a gluon, a term drawn from quantum physics that refers to the particles binding together the basic building blocks of all matter. 
Contractors and policymakers say Mr. Baxter can see past bureaucratic boundaries and integrate information drawn from a variety of sources, though some who have worked with him say he can also be a self-promoter. Mr. Baxter can speak the acronym-heavy vernacular of the professional defense consultant, but he would never be mistaken for one of the hardened ex-military men who fill the ranks of the industry. He rarely wears ties, is fond of self-deprecating jokes, makes frequent popular culture references, and peppers his speech with casual profanity. His defense work began in the 1980s when it occurred to him that much of the hardware and software being developed for military use, like data compression algorithms and large capacity storage devices, could also be used for recording music. Mr. Baxter's next door neighbor, a retired engineer who worked on the Pentagon's Sidewinder missile program, bought him a subscription to an aviation magazine and he was soon reading a range of military-related publications. Mr. Baxter began wondering whether existing military systems could be adapted to meet future threats they weren't designed to address, a heretical concept for most defense thinkers. In his spare time, he wrote a five-page paper on a primitive Tandy computer that proposed converting the military's Aegis program, a ship-based anti-plane system, into a rudimentary missile defense system. On a whim, he gave the paper to a friend from California, Republican Rep. Dana Rohrabacher. To Mr. Baxter's surprise, the congressman took it seriously, and the idea proved to be prescient. Aegis missile defense systems have done well in tests, and the Navy says it will equip at least one ship with the anti-missile system by the end of the year. Skunk really blew my mind with that report, Mr. Rohrabacher says. He was talking over my head half the time, and the fact that he was a rock star who had basically learned it all on his own was mind-boggling. I'm joined now by Cynthia Ryan, a colleague facilitator at ideas to go uh, creative force, uh, service-oriented mentor. Certainly, I've learned a lot from Cynthia. I, I haven't really necessarily copped to her directly how much I've stolen some of her tricks, but uh, we all do that with each other, hopefully. And so, Cynthia, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. And don't we call that building, Adam, when we steal each other's <laughs> ideas? I think we call that building. Yes. It's, it's, uh, we're, very, we're very generous with ideas and really uh, ideas get better when we, when we do share them and everyone puts on their you know, unique spin. Yeah. There's always more where those came from. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the beautiful thing about sharing ideas as opposed to physical goods is if I give you a physical good, you have it and I don't. With ideas, <laughs> I give you my idea, and then we both have it, right? I'm still so. open to you sending me gifts, Adam. <laughs> okay. Do whatever makes you most comfortable. Well, I've, I've been remiss. <laughs> uh, Cynthia, so we're discussing confirmation bias, and this one's really interesting. Uh, as with all the cognitive biases, they are non, this one is also non-conscious. So this craziness is going on, and we are not sufficiently accounting for it. Uh, so just by bringing up some awareness, what it is, what it looks like, how it tends to show up, we're hoping that people can, um, you know, start to see, see it when it's starting, you know, and, and kind of do the end run on it and understand that default mode is, you know, isn't, is kind of weird and not, you know, all that helpful. Uh, there is a, there's a great quote I wanted to share. It's by the, uh, an MD named Atul Gawande, who wrote a really great book a few years ago called The Checklist Manifesto. And oh, he was a leader. Yeah. And this guy's just brilliant. I don't know how he's, he's still a practicing doctor and yet still 
does all the I met him at a conference once. He's a genius. Oh, yeah. A genius. So, Cynthia, he wrote this great thing about the scientific mindset, which we would encourage everyone to adopt if you're in innovation. You don't have to be a scientist. That doesn't mean you have to be an R&D person. Uh, He said in the speech that he gave, it's science is not so much a major, you know, in, in school, but an approach to work. And he said the scientific mindset is experimental, not litigious. And so this ties directly to confirmation bias. Once we're aware that, that we're, we have this default to try to be litigious, to prove points that we are already on board with, mm-hmm. then we'll know not to do that and that we can actually learn more if we're experimental. And if we really place ourselves in situations where we can actually see if we can disprove some of the things that we hold on to so tenaciously. Yeah, we call that learning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that actually is. So let's continue to learn. Uh, as we told uh, our kids, uh, please don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. <laughs> I think that's a great tip. And that's, uh, it's just a little more kind of humility toward how the world actually is versus what we think it is. So with that, uh, this just in, Cynthia, I have two things for you. This actually just came in today. Can you hear the paper? I can. It sounds fresh. It's hot off the press. Actually, it kind of hurts. I should have gloves on. <laughs> uh, study, fake news on Twitter. I hate to use particular language, but uh, fake news on Twitter is more popular than the truth. In one of the largest studies of its kind, MIT researchers examining thousands of fake news stories going back a decade on Twitter have determined that fake news is more likely to spread across the social network than factual information. Duh, he said, but the statistics might be even worse than expected. Uh, False claims were 70% more likely than the truth to be shared on Twitter. 70%, almost twice as much. I know. Uh, True stories were rarely retweeted by more than 1,000 people, but the top 1% of false stories were routinely shared by 1,000 to 100,000 people. And it it took true stories about six times as long as false ones to reach 1,500 people. So So yesterday, my husband starts reading me this. He's aghast. And he's reading me this article about, I'll just say, someone in the higher levels of government. Sure. And (laughs) then he gets to the bottom and he says, oh, oh, no, wait, that was Borowitz. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, there that's, you go, in my so, own home. Well, so this is where, you know, where uh, satire is indistinguishable from what's actually happening. It, it is a current event. Let's yeah. So, so leading us all the more to understand what kind of our role and our responsibility is in this yeah. and, and, and to be better. You can laugh, but this is serious stuff. Well, and we need to be better managers of those gifts that we have different than any of the other animals, right? And so all the other, many other mammals in particular have kind of the emotional centers, the amygdala and everything. And much of this stuff comes from that, right? That's the seat of a lot of these emotionally charged intuitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But different than the other animals, we also then have a prefrontal cortex, which... (laughs) Now we shouldn't make we should make decisions with both the the, uh, the emotional centers of the brain are, are really really valuable they're they're an important source of information and they should be you know uh, a counselor 
to to the king, but the king needs to be the prefrontal cortex, not not the emotional centers. So yeah. be uh, be advised by it. Go to war. Make war with a multitude of counselors, but make sure you have a wise, you know, king making the final call on some of the things. Or queen. Or queen. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 royal. <laughs> we'll say royal. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. I was uh, I was uh, too tied into the framing of uh, you know the good book, as they say. I don't think it hurts if we model the confirmation bias. I like it. I like it. Oh, <laughs> hey, well, hey, here's the the beauty of this, as with really all these cognitive biases. Um, I would be foolish to believe that I'm catching myself, maybe even a majority of the time. I feel the same. But I'm catching myself a whole lot more than I used to. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> and so that's, I know. As, long I as, know. The, as long as the trend is right, I think we're in good shape. <laughs> Cynthia, well, early we start with the confirmation bias. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, it proves it's ingrained, right? It's hardwired. Because at what point do kids say, oh, that's weird. That note from Santa Claus, thanking me for the cookies and milk. <laughs> he writes just like my dad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it starts early. Well, and yeah, and so then the lengths will go to to uh, kind of explain that away and make that exactly. make that make sense. Yeah, exactly. that's fantastic, Cynthia. We uh, we talked about other examples of confirmation bias so that we can just put a little more dimension to it and 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 show folks lots of different ways in which it shows up. Was one of these more interesting to you? Well, I really, I think it's so important right now, the, the conversation we had earlier about fake news and the implications and the obligations of these citizen journalists. Yeah. Um, I think people would find that helpful as well as interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, this is the idea that because of, you know, access, you know, not too many years ago, we got most of our information from Walter Cronkite, right? And we trusted him. And we trusted him. And, and even, you know, uh, regardless of political persuasion, you know, some folks at the extremes, you know, never have never trusted anyone <laughs> except, their, except their own tribe. But um, now we have kind of this fragmentation and actually more people are actually able to collect news and get it out there get it out there and um, often regularly, reliably beating the, uh, the news outlets themselves. And so what, tell me a little bit more about citizen journalists. What, uh, what, what's well, interesting? The idea um, that I actually, I'm, I'm using the, the term that I, I read in, in uh, the book from you, I believe, maybe it was just our conversations. I don't know. I'd have to confabulate. Doesn't, <laughs> ma doesn't matter. <laughs> but the, the whole idea of because people have this instant way of telegraphing, um, to use an old term for a new term, that the idea that you can spread information so quickly that you don't take the time to check the facts. Now, we complain yeah. about that when professional journalists do not do that. And yet I think a lot of us are guilty of that all the time. You know, well, we're not fact-checking either. If it appeals to us, if it fits our story, our perceptions, it, it just feels true. And so you pass it on. That's right. And I think that's a real danger as a, as a citizen in a country where we have free speech, 
a democracy is not going to thrive if people aren't their best selves. That's right. And that sounds a little soapboxy, but it's how I feel. Well, we, uh, throughout the podcast uh, so far, we, we rarely take kind of righteous stances. Hot dog. Well, I have other examples of me being stupid, so we can get to those too. No, that, that's, ex- and that's a little variety. That, that's the great news in, in all of these is that we're in it together. So let's kind of link arms and, and proceed forward and try our best. boldly helping each other and, and recognizing that none of us can ever be in a position of judgment. We can only be in a position of, you know, kind of solidarity, <laughs> you yeah. know, with each other yeah. on it. So th- what's interesting about confirmation bias, and it's easy to see how it's activated when the evidence is ambiguous, because you then could interpret it your way or any other way, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't even necessarily think of it that way, because we'll see the evidence and we, and we just cherry pick, again, non-consciously, those things that support what we already believe to be true, but it gets worse. The research shows that even when uh, the evidence is not ambigu- ambiguous at all, we'll still figure out ways somehow to discount when it's coming in. And so the example is, uh, I think we've all heard the stories of, and, and, and you know, back, I, I don't know if it's when, ethics amongst uh, psychological researchers were just a little looser or what, but we've all heard um, some research that's like at the beginning of a school year of the brand new class, teacher A was told that this group of kids were absolute geniuses. Yeah. And then teacher B was told the exact opposite and they let it play out for like the entire school year. And, and voila, each teacher was able to furnish the evidence necessary to confirm what they were told. And, and where the unambiguous stuff comes in is even if a kid did great on a multiple choice test versus like an essay question, an essay question, yeah. there's some interpretation and everything. And you could, you know, that, that's a little, that's a little trickier, but how is an answer to a multiple choice test ambiguous in any way? And what happened is the teachers would say, well, but look, that test wasn't written all that well. And so that's not, that's not really evidence that they're bright or that they're not bright or whatever, uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, but it's really and explain it away. Yeah. It's really the lack of sturdiness in the evidence itself. Yeah. There is another example many decades ago, right out of college, I was teaching and I remember the studies about um, names and how teachers responded to names of their students. So you get your class list and there's names on it. And unconsciously, you start to make assumptions about the kids that will walk in your door with those names. And this month, Scientific America, uh, American has a different take on it. Like you wish that didn't happen anymore because everyone remembers those studies. <laughs> what they do is say, not only is it still happening, but they point out some more details. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. The problem and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the sentence that stuck out in my mind was reinforcing what you said a little bit earlier. Um, they said, knowing that confirmation biases can influence perceptions, even knowing that, even when individuals know or believe that that stereotype is false. So my stereotype of a certain name I know is false. Yeah. It 
still influences my thinking about the person with that name. Now that's frightening. Well, and this goes right in long, you know, there's, there's it's been some pushback of late on some of the implicit association tests, but it's those tests where a, a word is flashed up on the screen and you yeah. have seconds to, to give it a binary response, either good yeah. or bad or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what that speaks to is that these intuitions are pre-rational. Yes. They're not. They're not even really getting uh, to that wiser part of us. Get they don't even set us up for the opportunity to exercise, um, you know, system two thinking, slower thinking, more deliberative well, thinking. Well, it barely makes system one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is. It's just it's just pure stimulus response. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is the weirdness that um, you know a disproportionate number of lawyers are named Lawrence, Uh a a disproportionate number of dentists are named Dennis. And in in some weird permutation of this, kind of just kind of some self-selection bias, uh, and and in in this particular case, ridiculous narcissism on my part. Go ahead, Adam. Two of my favorite clients are named Adam. I know who they are. (laughs) Yes. Hello, Adam, if you're listening. (laughs) It's a, yeah, gentlemen, you know who you are. Anyhow. um, Here's a few things from that Scientific American article. If you put your middle initial when you sign or when you have your, on a resume, you're perceived as uh, more intellectual and (laughs) have more bearing. My personal thing is if you sound like you're foreign, you're smarter than I am, but that was not in Scientific American. Oh, Oh, that's jolly good. Well, off you go then. Okay. People with easy to pronounce names are judged more positively. Um, Women with masculine sounding names, we've certainly seen that trend. These are perhaps parents who want them to be in successful legal careers because that's where those women with the androgynous names um, appear the most. So, yeah, it's still happening. I mean, forget the decades ago with those students and the different studies, but did you ever hear about the one where the teacher um, ch- puts all the kids with blue eyes in one group and all the kids with brown eyes in another group? And I, then she I, tells... I, I didn't, and I wish that didn't conjure <laughs> images. Yes. Well, it, it, it's to teach kids about the biases that, that we have. Anyway, yeah. another story. We'll talk. Yeah. You'd love it. Yeah, again, again... Um, it feels like hopefully we've made some progress as a society and some of these earlier tests that now seem a little ethically dubious uh, are just, we have to be more creative to try to tease out the same variables. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised that teasing it out is still the challenge because there it is. Yeah. Um, We have some examples from our own work where we've seen this happen. Uh, I'll, I'll just share, um, I, I try not to ever get, you have to be careful, don't you? Well, I never want to get too pointed. So I can speak yeah. to certainly some broad, uh, kind of reliably consistent appearances mm-hmm. of confirmation bias. And this is where, for example, now we do our concept development. Liza's going to have fun with this. She does the show notes after where she explains all our jargon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so we, we have to give her something. Come on, Liza. Um, this is where we've developed, con- so we do ideation, we come up with all these great ideas, we pull the best ideas forward, we flesh them out into understandable 
um, you know, paper prototypes or just kind of word prototypes. And then we take them into testing to see, okay, we have, you know, 10 different ways, you know, we could go after this general area now, uh, which of these are working well and why. Clients and even us, and even us, <laughs> I sounded so pompous, uh, as facilitators, I mean, you're going you're gonna to like some of the concepts more than others. Some, hopefully with some justification, but certainly some of them are just, just going to be, it's going to be totally subjective. Of course. And, and now we get into the testing, and, and this is where the great David Ogilvy quote comes in, don't use research as a drunk uses a lamppost for support <laughs> and not for illumination. And this is where we really, it's going to be very natural for us, for us to cherry pick, you know, one or two well-articulated, uh, perhaps even kind of emotionally invested statements from the test respondents. And, and, and we're going to be swayed by the fact if, you know, if they are said really well, or if they said, or are said with a little more conviction, then we'll hear one or two of them say, yep, just as I thought, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas we ought to go into those, and we can note those, but never at the expense of going in again, like, like uh, you know, Mr. Gawande advises, to be experimental, not litigious, to try, is there any way I can disprove what some of my intuitions are? Can I, can I, can I pay special attention to those things that aren't quite going the way I, I thought they would, because there's actually more information there for me. Yeah. Um, I had a very brave client team once, Adam, when we got to, we're kind of starting at the end of the process. Yeah. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll work backwards. <laughs> um, it was a very brave team, and they were trying to learn about uh, personal care products. And um, I, will, I will also be careful with the details, but let's just say that the concept that they took in front of this group of women was for a depilatory pantyhose. And that, I just want to say depilatory oh. pantyhose is just one of my favorite word couplets ever. Well, feel free to use it, <laughs> at, you know, at parties or even around the family dinner table. Well, this it's, 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 it's so the, long ago, the, women wore weekend. pantyhose yeah. and tights, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, we, we, we read the concept. The women around the table are visibly shaking. <laughs> they are giggling to themselves, trying to hold it in. And when they meet, they look up and they see each other's eyes, it just breaks into this guffaw. <laughs> and one woman, again, the team is here to hear. You know, they're not launching this. They want to hear. So it was a brave thing to do. But when the woman um, to the right said, well... I guess I just wonder how far up they work. We all, we all just oh. the team in the back room. Kudos for putting it out there. We had a fascinating talk about where else that might go, and I'll just leave it at that. But well, yeah. and so so here's the value of not playing it safe. Yeah, right? exactly right. That's why I say they're brave. Yeah, yeah. It led, but it led to more learning. Did it ever? And I'm guessing at some point upstream from that, there were some doubts on the team itself about that concept. Yeah. Oh, they, they knew they were taking a risk, but I applaud them for doing it because yeah. they learned more from that conversation than they would have had they not put it out there. 
And this, so this is the importance in when you're doing this kind of work early on with ideas and concepts is it's human nature to fast forward to the launch itself, the potential yep. launch itself sure. and, and not to um, think more about the learning and, and how, you know, the concepts really are just learning vehicles. I mean, yep. we should think about them first and foremost as that if it turns out that they're actually hey, pretty far along and, and they seem to cohere really nicely and there might actually be some launch considerations as well, fantastic. But that's not the first thing that we should be worried about this early in the game. No, it's not. And yet we've all seen something go from the, from the concept to the shelf and oh, that felt so good. Oh, absolutely. Worked so hard. Absolutely. Um, that's great, that's great. But even if you can take in a mix Right? Yeah. So yeah. The ones that you feel like, damn, that's good work. That, <laughs> that is an insight. Boy, they relate. That's a compelling benefit. Fabulous. We'll always but take at those. Least put some in that make you scratch yourself. They're itchy enough that you can. <laughs> Very good. Um, so there is some. So we encourage multifunctional teams to come in um, sure. into our, our project. So we have marketing people, we have market research people, we have R&D. Depending on what we're working on, we might have some regulatory folks. Um, we, uh, I'll speak back to previous experience when I was on the client side, but then also just noticing what's going on with clients. The confirmation bias can extend to how we already pre-plan the expected response or participation level or overall tonality of a colleague from a different function, right? And so what I've noticed is that um, marketers will sometimes over-imagine the severity of the response from regu regulatory. Uh-huh. And, uh -huh. and that's, that probably, there's probably good reason for that. Uh, one thing is because of negativity bias they will over remember, you know, the negative responses from regulatory when they've dealt with them before. And, and <laughs> they can still feel the slap. Yeah, exactly. And they'll discount and they'll discount those situations where the response from regulatory was fine, you know, and, yeah, and, and exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so again, it's, it, uh, it really applies in kind of a 360 degree view. It's not just to the topic itself, but it's to everything around what you're doing. Yeah. The whole context. Yeah. All right. What else do we have here? Um, well, I've, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, uh, building on your idea of the uh, um, bringing in a diverse team. It also, as you know, can be really helpful to bring in adjacent experts from outside your company. So you've got all the different people on your team. But if you really want to um, make sure that you're not using the, the lenses of your company, uh, you've got to make that much broader so you can invite people to participate who, by adjacent experts, I'm saying the people that don't have a direct link to you, but they know something about your topic. Yeah. And I'm remembering, oh, we had a fabulous project once when we had local chefs come in and they talked about sauces for fish and meats. And uh, we had James Beard Award winners. I mean, these were like celebrity chefs in town. 
And of course, they all knew each other. There was a nice vibe going. And we got into the kitchens because we um, did it at a, at a um, cooking school. And we're making sauces, and the creative consumers have made sauces. And oh, my God, this is great. Just a little more tarragon. It is just a, a fun food show. We never told our chefs when they left that ideation session that they had been working with pet parents, consumers, <laughs> and that all of their recipes that looked so good, tasted so good, smelled so good, were so that they could be added to pet food and the owner felt good about serving it to that other four-legged member of their family. And that's so absolutely brilliant. It was fabulous. The clients got ideas. Talk about insight, Rich. I mean, they were just buzzed when they left. And that's because you didn't go with just kind of the more obvious, closer in, you know, set a set of inputs well, from the outside. I guess the trick is you invite people who force you to, to look yeah. beyond what you've already thought of. So it's easy now to think of a spectrum uh, because I'm a geek and I, I do that a lot. Um, so think of a spectrum where on you know, kind of the low end, it's people whose pool of confirmation bias is going to almost entirely overlap with my own, mm -hmm. right? That's probably a lot of the even within a function there there are some variances of course and you have the, you have the people a little further out there and the people who much more toe the party line yeah you go to a different function and, the, and you start to tease that away there's still going to be some overlap but not quite as much when you go further out then now you have people whose overlap of confirmation biases uh, maybe only kind of touch you know, on the very kind of border of you know. <laughs> <laughs> of these pools of confirmation bias. And that's what we want to have. We want to make sure we have some degree of non-overlapping in our, in our cognitive, in our confirmation blind spots. Right. And, and, and so I can, it's, it really should be interesting to us when we hear someone teeing it up such a different way. Oh yeah. And I think it just, it gives you a new way of thinking about something. And if you're lucky enough to be in a job that you love for, a while, at a certain point, you kind of feel like, I got it. Yeah, I, yeah. I got it. What we always need to have is people that make us think, wow, that blows me away. I didn't have that in my head at all. That's right. And uh, those are the, the types of people you need to get you to question what your own perceptions are. One, uh, one cognitive bias that we don't... Uh, lay out in the book, but it is certainly, I think, becoming increasingly obvious is um, it's called naive realism, where we believe the world is as we actually see it, and that we, we, we pretty much have uh, captured, you know, 99% of reality. And is that the blue dress, gold dress? <laughs> well, that, 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 yeah. that's, that's part of it, you know, yeah. uh, Tied well, don't in. give it away, Adam. Write another book. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. No, we, we may do this anyhow. There's enough there. But it, it, um, we're, we're finite creatures. And actually, most of the stimuli that come our way are excluded by the reticular formation in our, in our cognition. If those people who, who don't have that worked out as well sometimes get the diagnosis of schizophrenia because it's just... It, it's, it's too much. It's just all coming in and there's not... Um, Their aperture is larger. 
Yeah, and, and too large, larger than than you can actually process, than you can actually deal with, and and it's, and when it you know starts to become, you know, undifferentiated noise because you can't, it's just too much to actually start to build patterns out of it or anything. That's uh, yeah, that, that's not good. So it's actually evolutionarily adaptive for our ancestors, those of our ancestors who had this capability and who could hone in only on the most important stuff, and at that time that meant stuff that was much more tied to surviving until the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the ones who got to stick around long enough to pass on their DNA. And so those who didn't have as well-regulated a reticular formation uh, were probably more subject to, you know, existential threat. So mm-hmm. because of this and the naive realism then that comes along with it, we, we really ought to be seeking out regularly the input from others. Now it's tough. It's, it's, you know, it's too easy to go to politics and see why that's so tricky, but it's really in any area. And we, we need to draw some conclusions and make some kind of bets on what reality is so we can actually operate. Mm -hmm. But then we just, um, we always need to be willing to trade up our ideas, right? Our, our set, our sense of what reality actually is. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I think of, I don't know if it was the word operate or if I was ahead of time, but you think of the world of medicine and specialties and how people train and do fellowships for years to become expert in their specialty. Um, the New York Times Magazine always has those um, medical case studies, you know, the yeah. medical mystery, what yeah. And so often it will contain evidence of confirmation bias where a physician in this specialty thinks it's one thing. That's his diagnosis. A physician in another specialty (laughs) thinks it's another thing. That's her diagnosis. So they tend to hone in on what they've spent years and years and years learning and they ignore or downplay facts or symptoms of something that could be in another area. I mean, we all know people that have gone for years before they got a correct diagnosis for the symptoms that they yeah. had. Yeah. You know, that's always part of those stories. And I think if you want to talk a smart group of people, you're there. If you want to talk about an educated group of people, they are. But even so, that's something that confirmation bias is really a huge issue in their field of work and which makes it an issue for all the rest of us. Well, absolutely. And the, we tend to believe that those with more training, um, more education, everything are going to be less subject to. Yeah. Well, and throw in a British accent and I'm, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a great conversation with the Brit client about that once. And, and, you know, we, he, yes, he had certainly heard that, uh, <laughs> Most of us, upon hearing that accent, uh, assign an extra 20 IQ points. Uh, (laughs) All right, Cynthia, there are some ways to bust this bias. Um, One is assumption busting. And uh, do you want to tell us what that's like? I like hearing you talk more. I'm tired of hearing myself. Oh, I like hearing you. (laughs) Um, so assumption busting is an exercise that we use often in ideation to get people to consciously look at where their confirmation biases may be holding them back for innovation. 
So the idea behind assumption busting is that you list all the things that you know or believe to be true about your particular product. And it can be everything from the obvious to the sublime, right? Yeah. It, it's any, no detail is too small. So you may- well, and, even, and even um, going out of your way to think about those uh, assumptions that are so basic, they're so baked into the cake that sometimes it's even hard to hold them as an assumption. It's just, you just, well, yeah, duh. I mean, that's just. Yeah, that's it. You've got your duh list and then you yeah. have your ones where people are trying to push, right? Yeah. Um, but then the, the um, if you do a good job of that, getting the duh in there with the other characteristics or associations, then you turn that on its head and play the, well, let's bust that. What if that wasn't true? Yeah. And by doing that, you, you get over that fence of, but this is the way we do it. This is who we are. This is what our brand says. You, you make an effort to really push yourself out by, by busting those. And it's a great way to come up with new product ideas, new ways of talking about them, new audiences to target. I mean, it's, it's really not just fun. It's productive. And I thought of that when I um, was uh, looking through some, some websites just the other day. And of course, what was it two days ago? Here's one. Coke, Coke, who's been a virgin for a hundred and what, 25 years. Coke is now going into Japan to launch their first alcoholic drink. <laughs> and Allison, no, it's not a rum and Coke. It's not a Jack and Coke. It is actually a product that um, builds on the green um, alcohol beverages of Japan, right? But Coke, certainly that would have been on the, what's the assumption? Well, we're not an alcoholic beverage company. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they defined soft drinks. <laughs> they certainly did. They, they developed it, they defined it, and, oh, I'll just have a Coke, I'm driving. Okay, that's yeah. fine. But now they've totally broken out of that assumption. They busted it. And they're, they're giving this a try. Another fun one I read about the other day was uh, airplane or airplane was a, a airline company in Japan called First Airlines, and they have developed um, this product that is virtual reality experience, and it costs about I don't know 170 dollars US, and it's everything about a simulated um, trip to another country. They have locations like you can choose New York or Hawaii or I don't know, some other thing that seemed exotic in Japan. Then, the, <laughs> oh, oh, Paris, of course. Paris yes. on my list. Um, but it's everything from you show up, you have to be there ahead of time, you get your boarding pass, you go out, you sit in this plane, you have to, this I thought curious, you have to still listen to the safety announcements, which you'd think if you were trying to improve something, you could have let that go. But the whole experience, the sound, the scent, the food. Wow. Upgrade on food to fit with the country you're going to, evidently. The whole experience 
is this simulated 110 minutes of foreign travel. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating idea. And you think, where could that go? How about, you know, people who are physically unable to do the traveling that they'd love to do? The, and of course, Japan with their elderly population, that's where they're really thinking this is going to take off. But I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating me to think that this now is selling, they're still selling an experience. They're not selling transportation. Well, and so it really, it elevates it. And the fact is that, you know, and I'm wondering, it's, it's kind of fun sometimes to imagine, to try to reverse engineer what might have been, like some questions that might have uh, led yeah. to that. And so what all can be true when we have these passengers captive for, you know, for X hours, Yeah. yeah. you know, and, and, and playing with that a little bit more. And what'd be really interesting to see what is like, what's the adoption of, of like, I, I'm guessing they're getting some takers. I, I think it'd be fascinating. Oh, I, I'm guessing they will too. And I think um, just the idea when you say kind of go back and walk the path that they walked, I would bet on an assumption list for an airline, it would be, we move people from one place to another. Yeah. yeah. And they did not mean in their imagination. Well, and that's great. Like, what, what are the many ways in which we can transport? Yeah. That's yeah. great. What, what's really good about assumption busting is that, um, and sometimes we have to explain a little bit more, and we say, look, we're just in the idea space. We're not, you know, we're, mm -hmm. not, we're not cutting steel yet. We're not, yeah. we're not writing. Don't cap worry. We're not, we're not <laughs> writing. Yeah, we're not writing capital requests yet or anything. <laughs> and, and indeed, maybe some of those assumptions are, insoluble and maybe they just are such givens i do like um i can't remember if it's elon musk or or who it is that says maybe it's bezos anyhow one of the one of the billionaire boys clubs uh you know guys yeah i don't but, run with them so you can fool me no i just i, I just like saying things i find interesting and then attributing it to and I'm paraphrasing poorly, but this, the idea is that so many of the rules or the assumptions that we buy into are just conventional wisdom. The only rules right now that can't be abrogated, at least on a non-quantum level, are, are the laws of physics. So well, other, other than that, we ought to be able to, to really challenge it. And then just what the, the, the value of doing this is when you get on the other side of that assumption and, and just in your own mind, just imagining that's not a barrier anymore, you will start to get to thinking that has, just hasn't been available to you before. Yeah. And even then, once you've thought that way, was it Emerson or who was it that said, you know, once, once a mind has expanded to think a particular way, it's impossible to go back to that earlier kind of contracted state. And I'm paraphrasing that poorly as well. But now, even if that assumption, even if there's really nothing that can be done about that assumption, by simply performing this exercise, you now have so many more interesting, fresh ways to deal with that assumption than you had before, because you just wrote it off and, and you let it limit you. Right. And sometimes it's not conventional wisdom, it's habit. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's nothing yeah, yeah. wisdom-y about it. It's just how you've always thought. Well, it's the, the privileges of incumbency, you know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, that's really good. 
Cynthia, I am noting the time here. We're coming up on the end. This has been so enjoyable. We haven't covered nearly enough. And so that's what the opportunity is in, I think, so many of these episodes is there's always plenty of room left over um, to come back to. There's, Do we there's, have time for my favorite example? That's uh, what I was just about to ask you. Oh, I do. It, it's my very favorite. And of course, it won't surprise you to know it stars my kids. Uh, <laughs> and I would like to say as a preface, thank you, Supreme Court. Okay. There we go. So here's the setup. My son is, oh, maybe five. My daughter's three. Our cat is old enough to have been in the family for quite a while. And one day we're all sitting on the couch and my daughter's holding the cat and she just hugs him so tight and she says to us, oh, I love Silky so much. When I grow up, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> and my son, with the wisdom of a five-year-old, looks at me, rolls his eyes conspiratorially and says, oh, Emily, girls don't marry girls. Uh. <laughs> so forget about the whole girls don't marry cats thing that is something he's going to ignore for now but in his little 1983 world <laughs> girls don't marry girls and so. of course and of course we have crossed that threshold before we've crossed the interspecies uh thing yeah <laughs> you know, it was nip and tuck for a while but yeah yeah we finally oh that is fantastic i love it it's but, based on his belief and he let everything else go Oh, that is that just absolutely <laughs> perfect. Well, so what we want to encourage everyone to do, so go and do this now. Uh, we'd like to encourage you the next time you're placed in a situation where you know some of your assumptions can be challenged, some of your pet beliefs, or just even leanings that you have. And, and, and what we know from those leanings is those, those actually are decisions. We, we just don't come out and say, <laughs> yes, I'm there firmly. We say, I'm not leaning that way. But even the leaning will skew our perception and, and make us cherry pick anything that supports that leaning. And so next time, be aware. This, this is not a rare thing. This happens daily. So be aware the next time that comes up and just challenge yourself. Is there any other way to interpret this? Uh, I know it fits a pattern that I've established for myself. I know how I've landed on this you know, 15,000 times before, it might there be another way of, of thinking about this. And well, I think the reward for that discomfort will be that it could be equally effective or better. Or better. You know, if, That's right. If you put that out there, um, it might be worth it to you. Very good. Cynthia, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been so much fun. No need uh, to thank me. It was my pleasure. This was really good. This, did we do okay? Did this go well? I think it was very fun. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I'm always looking for feedback. And, oh, I, and, I, and evidently, I don't mind getting it in real time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. All right, folks, thank you so much. Here's to continued success in your innovation efforts. If you're not enjoying innovation, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> we'll see you all on the next episode. Thanks so much. Bye, Cynthia. Bye-bye, Adam. Hi, everyone. This is Liza. I'm back with our self-inflicted curse of knowledge list. Uh, this episode, Confirmation Bias with Cynthia and Adam, 
was delightful and charming, as both of them are. Um, to start, when Cynthia mentions Borowitz, she is referring to Andy Borowitz, the comedian and author who created the Borowitz Report. It's a satirical news column. On purpose, fake news. Uh, system 1 and System 2 thinking, as discussed in a previous podcast, refers to the terms that psychologist Daniel Kahneman used for fast, intuitive reactions and decisions, which is System 1, versus System 2, which is considered slower, more deliberate, and more logical thinking. When Cynthia refers to the teacher who separated students in her classroom based on eye color, she is talking about Jane Elliott former third grade school teacher and anti-racism activist known for her blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. She first conducted this experiment for her class the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, which is exactly 50 years to the day that I am recording these sick notes right now. The exercise and its conclusions about bias uh, have been featured in books, on TV, and have and uh, generally focus on discrimination, how it feels when one group is told they are superior or inferior to another. By ideation, we mean the idea generation phase of ideas to go's innovation process, usually the first part of the project, and if you have been listening to these podcasts, we refer to it every time. Concept development is the phase of our process that takes an idea developed from um, or started in ideation and developed further, often with a consumer insight, a benefit, and a succinct description. Um, when Adam says word prototypes, uh, he's referring to a concept. He makes it sound fancy. David Ogilvy is considered the father of advertising. He was known for his belief that success in advertising comes from consumer research. Along with the lamppost quote that Adam mentioned, he is also credited with the quote, the customer is not a moron, she's your wife. When Cynthia talks about the women who were visibly shaking around the table as the depilatory pantyhose concept was being read, she is referring to a traditional focus group which is a group of consumers brought together to react to concepts. And I just really wanted to say depilatory pantyhose. Um, as always, when we refer to clients, we mean the people and companies we work with at ideas to go many of whom are on the Fortune 100 list. Uh, when Cynthia mentions creative consumers, she's referring to ideas to gos proprietary panel of consumers. Unlike focus group consumers that I mentioned just a second ago who react to ideas and concepts, our creative consumers generate the ideas themselves or build on them, as Cynthia demonstrated several times during the episode, uh, to make an idea better. They are more solution-oriented in their role um, in consumer market research. Uh, when Adam refers to himself as a geek, I am here to confirm that he is one in the best of all best possible ways. Uh, when Cynthia mentions the blue dress, gold dress, she is referring to the dress that became a viral internet sensation back in 2015. That was when people disagreed about the color of the same dress either revealing some insight into human color perception or variations in computer monitoring screens. You decide. 
when Adam paraphrased the quote, once a mind is expanded to think a particular way, it's impossible to go back to that earlier contracted state. Uh, he's referring to a quote that is often attributed to lots of different people, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Albert Einstein. Remember, friends, the internet is not always your best source for real answers, as Adam mentioned at the top of the episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. We are ideas to go We love innovation and serving our clients. For more information about us, check us out at www.ideastogo.com as well as outsmartyourinstincts.com. Stay tuned for further explorations and people being liberated to do innovation right on the next episode of the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast. 